Throughout history, there were women who dressed as men to work as sailors or soldiers in order to advance in a violent patriarchal world. Everyone knows about Joan of Arc, but there were many others, like Hannah Snell, who in the 1700s disguised herself as a man and joined the Royal Marines of Britain. Even after she was revealed as a woman, she was still honorably discharged and given a pension. It was unusual, but people had little difficulty imagining why a woman would pretend to be a man, at least if she employed her male persona in the service of the country. Much less comprehensible in the early modern era was why a man, especially a man in a position of power and influence, would become a woman. Women had few, if any, property rights throughout Europe, and in pre-revolutionary France, they could be imprisoned indefinitely in a convent for adultery or promiscuity. Why would anyone give up their privileges as a man for that? Yet that did happen in 18th century France with Charles Genevieve, Louis-Auguste-André Timothée Deon de Beaumont, known to history by her title, the Chevalier Deon. In her life, Dion did claim that she had been born a woman, but had been disguised as a man. However, an autopsy performed in 1810 found, to everyone's surprise, that she had been anatomically male all along. Dion was born to a minor and somewhat poor noble family in Burgundy. But luckily his father, who worked for the monarchy as an attorney specializing in royal property rights, and his mother, the daughter of a general, had connections. Between that and being a star student, Dion managed to get posts as a secretary for the government's fiscal office and work as a royal censor. At some point, Dion got one big promotion and was enlisted in the government department known as the King's Secret. It was basically an 18th century secret service agency, which started out as just a way to put a member of the French royal family on the throne of Poland. But it moved on later to one pretty specific purpose, crush Britain. France had recently suffered massive territorial losses in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War, losing all its territory in North America to Britain and Spain, except for two tiny islands off the coast of Newfoundland. The King's Secret was dedicated entirely to getting spies into Britain to take logistical details about the country and set agents up with diplomatic preparations for an eventual total invasion of Britain. The King of France, Louis XV, was so concerned about the mission being undermined by exposure that he made it a secret even to most of his ministers, hence the name. It all, in the end, ended up amounting to nothing. But for Dion, it was the start of a glorious career. Dion's first mission was to Russia, whose monarch at the time was Tsarina Elizabeth, and to get her to side with France and abandon any cordial relationship with the British. The mission was accomplished. Allegedly, it was at Elizabeth's court that Dion first began to dress as a woman, specifically in disguise as one of the Empress's ladies of honor, Lena de Maumont. One letter, allegedly from Louis XV, even praised Dion for accomplishing more in a dress than in the clothes of a man, although the existence of the letter is heavily disputed. After a short but distinguished military career as a captain of dragoons, Dion was sent to England to openly serve as a diplomat and to secretly serve as a spy, helping to collect information about Britain's coastal defenses, information which was sent back to France in code, 
and laying the groundwork for schemes to bribe members of parliament. Here too, Dion was successful, weaving connections with the highest members of British society, all the way up to the royal family. Unfortunately, Dion was maybe a bit too successful, and started living it up in London as a celebrity. Even though he wasn't France's chief representative in London, he lived like he was completely indispensable, keeping a staff of 22 servants, 10 horses, and hosting lavish parties, attended by the likes of the Scottish philosopher David Hume and the famous writer and politician Horace Walpole. Dion particularly seemed to find that imported wine was the perfect social lubricant. In one order alone, he bought 2,800 bottles of wine for 150 pounds. Exactly why Dion fell out with his bosses while in London is a bit unclear, but apparently it was Dion's extravagant spending and a sense that the government was skimping on his pay that was the cause. This affair is not about money do me, it is about honor and justice, Dion wrote to one of his superiors, the Comte de Broglier. I have kept my honor intact, and no one can take it from me. Dion was soon recalled to France, a decision supported by the king himself, who saw Dion's behavior toward his superiors as outright insubordination. Dion refused to obey, claiming he was being unfairly targeted by the political faction led by the king's mistress, Madame de Pompadour, and stayed on in London. When the French government insisted that Dion owed them money over improper use of funds, Dion countered that, on the contrary, the government owed him money. It was an even more delicate situation than one might imagine. After all, Dion had the ability to effectively blackmail the entire French government and the king himself, which is exactly what he explicitly threatened to do. He even published in England a book that contained letters exchanged between Dion and different French ministers, declaring that four more volumes were upcoming. The French government pressured the British government to arrest Dion, this they were perfectly willing to do, since the publication of those letters were a liability for the British, too. But to their embarrassment, they just couldn't find any laws that Dion actually broke. Back in France, Louis XV took drastic measures, signing off on a plan to sue Dion for libel under British law, or have him kidnapped and brought back to France. It even came out that several foreign ministers were involved in a conspiracy to have Dion murdered. Amazingly, though, matters did eventually smooth over, or at least it seemed so. Dion was given a generous pension by the king. This might have just been an acceptable way to pay him off, but he also became more valuable as a celebrity despised by the French government and loved by the British public. And so, he was kept on as a spy. It is unclear when exactly Dion started dressing in women's clothes or started claiming that he was a she. But after Dion became a household name in Britain, thanks to the scandal over publishing the diplomatic letters, the London stock market started placing bets on whether or not Dion was a she or a he. Dion was apparently even in danger of being kidnapped, just so someone could prove Dion's sex one way or the other. The situation would be resolved, but it wouldn't be by some London gambler, but by the new king and queen of France, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. As much as we tend to today think of Louis XVI as the bungling idiot who messed up his one job so badly the French Revolution happened, when his grandfather Louis XV died in 1774 and he came to the French throne, 
The general public was relieved, excited even. Louis XV had become so notorious for his private life that he had become a joke. Among other torrid affairs, he slept with five sisters from one family. Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette were supposed to change all that. During Louis XV's lifetime, they sided constantly with the so-called devouts, the people who would be the traditional Catholic party if pre-revolutionary France actually had political parties. One of Louis XVI's first acts as king was to banish Louis XV's last mistress, Madame du Barry, from court and even from Versailles and Paris altogether. She wouldn't be the new regime's only target, though. Louis XVI, who had immediately abolished what was left of the king's secret, found it intolerable that Dion could blackmail the monarchy, but also that Dion was apparently a woman dressed as a man. The go-between assigned to handle negotiations with Dion, Pierre-Auguste Beaumarchais, was instructed to inform Dion that she would not be allowed to return to France until she agreed to hand over all incriminating papers and to agree to dress like a woman from then on. However, it might have been Dion's assumed gender that made Louis XVI go easy on her. Beaumarchais wrote, I dare assure you, sire, that by treating this astonishing person with tact and kindness, she, although embittered by twelve years of mistreatment, will be easily led back to submission. He was wrong. Of course, Louis XVI and Beaumarchais still found it necessary to offer to extend Dion's pension, and to even pay off some of her debts. For that, Dion finally gave up the papers and agreed to Louis XVI's conditions. Dion would be allowed to return home to France, and even visit the king and queen of Versailles. The reception, though, was destined to be ugly. Louis XV might have shrugged off the growing rumors that Dion was a woman, but faced with the reality, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette found Dion's gender to be a problem that had to be solved. Marie Antoinette herself personally sent Dion money and recommended various dressmakers who could set her up with a new wardrobe. Instead of being grateful, Dion left the Palace of Versailles to stay with her mother at Tonnerre, and later complained that the treatment she received was more bitter than pills of aloe. From the start, Louis XVI insisted that Dion declare openly that she was a she. Dion's request that she be allowed to rejoin the army and wear male uniforms in public were all refused. When Dion kept wearing uniforms in spite of the king's orders, Louis XVI even had her arrested in the middle of the night and carted off to prison. She wrote furiously to her allies, but one of her friends at the royal court, the Dutch, she wrote furiously to her allies, but one of her friends at the royal court, the Duchess de Montmorency Botteville, just wrote back. Was it not crazy to believe that after having been officially recognized before the entire court as a maiden, they would all approve of you going off to war? Louis XVI eventually let her wear the military insignia of the Order of St. Louis, but that was as far as he was prepared to go. The fact was, times were changing when it came to gender. In the late 17th century, the philosophical ideas of René Descartes and John Locke, who both suggested that people's understanding of the world around them didn't come from innate ideas, but from their experiences and education, had become hugely influential. Writers like Mary Estelle in England and Francois Pollan de la Barre seized on this, writing books arguing that maybe women and men weren't all that different. 
Sure, men might be physically stronger, but all the things that make women subordinate all come out of just the way they're educated and the way society treats them. It's impossible to say what influenced who or who influenced what, but the social trends did fit in neatly. Female narrators and protagonists became more common in literature. While the authors were still mostly male, lots of women read these novels and even interacted with the male authors through letters. Male fashions among the aristocracy became more colorful and decorative. Frocks even started to resemble skirts. One diarist in 1722, Sarah Osborne, remarked, Lord Essex has a silver tissue coat and pink color waistcoat, and several had pink color and pale coats, which look prodigiously effeminate. Meanwhile, women were increasingly wearing pants and male-looking attire whenever they went hunting. Probably the strangest and most obvious case of gender bending from the era was masquerade balls, where typically women dressed as men and vice versa. The practice became especially popular in Russia during the reign of the Tsarina Elizabeth, the very monarch who reigned during Dion's supposed first time dressed as a woman, and later her daughter-in-law and eventual successor, Catherine II. But it wasn't just Vogue in 18th century Russia, which just so happened to have a surplus of assertive female rulers who all deposed men to get the throne that century. Horace Walpole himself admitted that he had a trunk full of dresses just for when he was invited to masquerades. The backlash did come, starting in the middle of the 18th century. By then, scientific advances in anatomy and medicine in general were used to argue that gender wasn't just in the body, but exists within what 18th century doctors referred to as the nerves. Popular writers were also becoming obsessed with the alleged effeminacy of elite men and the butchness of women. None were more vocal than the popular philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who wrote in a letter to a friend, unable to make themselves into men, the women make us into women. Rousseau, who practically invented what we think of as Victorian values, opposed women having any kind of social and political role, instead arguing that, basically, a woman's place is in the home. As he wrote, There are no good morals for women outside of a withdrawn and domestic life. To be fair, Rousseau also argued that fathers should be more involved in the lives of their children, but he was pretty explicit in saying women should only be mothers and nothing else. Of course, None of us stopped Rousseau from leaving the four children he had with his mistress in an orphanage, but that's another story. Rousseau had plenty of prominent admirers, among them the very same queen who was so keen on imposing a rigid female identity on Dion. Marie Antoinette was a big fan of Rousseau to the point she took his advice by trying to break with aristocratic tradition by breastfeeding her own children instead of giving them to wet nurses although she was eventually pressured into giving up this practice. Also following Rousseau's advice that parents should be close to their children and grow up as close to nature as possible, she had portraits of herself with her children made in naturalistic settings, something that was completely new for any queen of France. Weirdly enough, Rousseau had one other devout fan in our little story, Dion herself. So how could someone who read Rousseau's books and admire his ideas reconcile what Rousseau says about women's place in society and wanting to become an 18th century Joan of Arc? 
The short answer is, well, we don't really know. The long answer is that there are different series. Gary Keats, who wrote a book about Dion called Monsieur Dion is a Woman, which you should totally read, even if you're only a tiny bit interested in the subject, thinks Dion did agree with Rousseau that there is such a thing as innate gender differences. However, instead of just seeing women as nature-made domestic workers, Dion believed women were more emotional and less selfish than men. In one letter, Dion mused, I have often wondered to myself if women are aware of their immense advantages and superiority. Dion might have just thought that her own troubles with powerful men in her life and the career and the friendships she formed with women showed that she was actually female. Another historian, Anna Clark, proposes that Dion was inspired by Rousseau's ideas about individual freedom, the sort of thing that did make him one of the great philosophers of modern democracy. As much as Dion's gender identity still inspires fascinating academic discussion today, her life became rather boring. Disillusioned by Louis XVI's refusal to let her go to war, Dion lived a quiet life with her mother in Tonnerre enjoying the fact that she had become a local celebrity there just as she had in London. However, in 1785, she did return to London, on the pretext of dealing with some debt and property she still had in England. But in the end, she would stay there for the rest of her life. Unfortunately, her life in London was a pale shadow of the days when she was the wealthy and famous toast of the city. The fall of the monarchy during the French Revolution meant that she lost the lifelong pension Louis XV had granted her, and the revolutionary government confiscated her family's estates. Although she had support from rich British friends, she still ended up in a debtor's prison for several months. Finally, badly injured in one of a series of public fencing matches she did, and paralyzed from an accidental fall, she died in 1810 at the age of 81. To this date, the final resting place of her remains have been forgotten. As anticlimactic and tragic as her life became, Dion is still a fascinating individual for reasons apart from her gender identity. She fought a duel in 1787 before the future King George IV of Britain against Joseph Bolognais, Chauvelet de Saint-Georges, the child of a slave and a plantation owner in the Caribbean who became the first black composer of classical music and would later lead an all-black regiment fighting for France during the French Revolution. Also, she offered to lead an all-female regiment for France against Austria in the Revolutionary Wars, and, well, she also wrote a 13-volume book on public policy. But even if Dion never became the war hero she wanted to be, she still managed to lead life in her own terms in the face of ugly political entanglements, the prudish opposition of the king and queen of France, and her own poverty. That alone makes her worth remembering. And if things like the fact that even in far-off Japan she's been remembered through a successful anime and manga series are any indication, I'm far from alone in thinking that. <laughs>